what's up, everybody? Welcome, welcome to the Arts of Data Science Happy Hour. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Hope you guys have enjoyed the last couple of weeks of the happy hour sessions. Last week, we had Vin taking over as host. The week before that, we had Antonio taking over as host. I'm back today for just a few minutes, just a quick message to the community. I'll probably be gone from hosting duties for uh, the next several weeks. Uh, while I was on vacation in California, my entire basement was flooded, which means all of my equipment all of my podcast gear, my computers, all that stuff is just ruined. So I have no way of actually recording. Uh, I'm actually renting out a co-working spot here for the time being. So, you know, I'm doing my thing. Uh, we will bear, we will forbear, my friends. We will be back here. We'll be doing it. We'll keep this happy hour going every single week. Anyway, we can't, my friends. Uh, if you guys want to help support the show, want to help uh, give back if you've learned or gained anything over the last few years, almost two years of this thing. Uh, feel free. Now's the time that I would love to have uh, you guys help. There's a link on every single episode to buy me a coffee. Go ahead, do that. I'll use that for. Um, I'll use that to get some more equipment because I have no clue when insurance is going to come through and hook me up. So please, I uh, would appreciate your support. There's a link right there in the chat in the. Uh, description of the show, wherever you're watching. Um, speaking of the show, hopefully you guys get an opportunity to tune into the episode that I just released uh, today with Fabrice Mesador. Uh, it's a great episode. I actually recorded that one over a year ago. So it's been quite some time uh, since I recorded that. So I'm happy to finally get that out. So definitely check that out. Uh, Fabrice is awesome. Had a great time talking about uh, his adventures I'm moving pretty much all over the world, man. Uh, so it was really cool to see. Um, other news, um, no other major news, except that Eric is taking over at the uh, at the helm today as host. So please do give Eric a uh, warm welcome. And, you know, he, he'll be the one taking over today. Um, I don't know what's going to happen when I end my portion of the stream. Uh, so let's do this. Let's make Eric the host. And I don't know what's going to happen on LinkedIn, if it'll still uh, be streaming on LinkedIn or not. Hopefully it is. If not, no worries. This will always be. Not it was fun. Yeah. It's always be recorded and uh, shared um, on the spot, yeah, on, on the sp uh, Spotify and, and Apple playlist and, and all that stuff. Eric, with great power comes great responsibility. Over to you, my friend. Uh, thanks so much for taking over hosting duty. Um, also, big shout out last weekend. I got a chance to hang out with a bunch of people uh, live and direct for the first time ever. Gina Duarte being one of those. It's nice to see Gina. Uh, hung out with Daliana, Makiko, uh, Zach Wilson, and um, Mark as well. Mark Freeman was there. It was a great time kicking out with everybody. Thanks for coming out. Appreciate you guys being there. Um, shout out to everybody else in the room. Rashad, what's going on? Vin, Russell, and Mark Bartolo. Thank you guys so much for being here. I got to sign off. I got a bunch of shit to take care of at home. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a... Uh, just a pile of madness in my basement. Uh, guys, take care. Eric, it's on you, man. Cheers. Peace. All right. Maybe we're still streaming live. Maybe we aren't. Looks like we still are. That's cool. By the way, Rashad, hey, how's it going? It's been a long time since I've seen you in real in, in real life, but I see you on yeah, your hey. posts on LinkedIn all the time now. 
All right. So I actually had a couple of questions I was going to ask anyway. So this actually worked out just fine. So the great reshuffling has continued to wreak attack upon, you know, the, the companies of the world, including but not limited to my employer. So my boss this last week, um, she's worked at Lending Tree for like 10 years. And so she decided that she wanted to make a move and try something different after 10 years. Good for her. Happy for her. Um, so I'm in the not that unusual situation, but the situation of I'm going to have a new boss now. I don't know who my new boss is. They haven't backfilled the position yet, but they're going to. And so I was just going to ask, I guess, kind of two pieces. One is I don't, I will probably be involved in some kind of interview related conversation. And so if you were having an interview with the person who might be your boss, what would you ask them? And once they are hired and now they're your boss, what would you do to best set up the, like set the relationship off on a good, good start? You've stumped the panel. <laughs> uh, I can go. I have something yeah, I've had, uh, our place I've had four bosses, uh, ranging from uh, engineering leader to like a product leader, like CTO. Yeah. So I had the range as far as interviewing them. I've interviewed like peers or people who could be, could be my boss a little bit. Um, I guess when I, I'm interviewing someone like high level, probably just, I really want to know like, uh, some of the biggest challenges they've overcome, uh, things that don't have a textbook answer. And then I want to understand their principles um, because no matter how much experience you have, uh, there will always be trade-offs in the decisions you make. So I kind of want to understand like how they deal with those trade-offs. And that's one way to look at it. Another way is like, what are their biases? So given the situation, they will tend to do this versus that. Um, that's kind of what I'll ask. Um, beyond that, it's hard to say. I mean, still keep friendly, of course. Um, and then as far as like, once hired, uh, how do you how do you make the relationship start off on the right foot? Um, well, you might remember the feeling of being new in a place and feeling like disoriented and being in, overloaded with information. Um, sometimes it takes a while for a new person to be exposed to like, like the gritty stuff, like uh, some of the politics or some of the like, I guess, inside information, they might just get like the general, like, this is how the business works. And then like, okay, now go sort of thing. Uh, or maybe they'll learn the priorities of their leaders, right? But then they're like, well, how do I actually do that? So if you can give them like on the ground details, um, that would not be part of their standard onboarding and sort of like, well, if you want to make these decisions, this is my perspective. I feel like that could be helpful. Um, it's been, people have told me that when I've told them that stuff, they found it helpful. Um, sort of being a little more, authentic and open, I guess, than maybe the standard, hey, nice to meet you in our 30-minute one-on-one, welcome, uh, tell me about your experience sort of thing, which is like the standard. So going a little deeper, yeah. I'd say, is probably general key to that, doing that well. I like it. Cool. Thank you. Russell, you dropped something and said you had a comment. Yeah. Um so I, I think I'd approach it from a more rounded perspective and try and speak to them for their management style and um, work style, maybe put to them some scenarios like say there was an issue in the team and we had to solve it or, or say if I had 
if I had been the cause of an issue that we had to correct, how would you how would you deal with me? How would we go through that situation um, to try and get an idea of of how they would react? I mean, they're likely to try and paint that as prettily as they can if they're in an interview situation. But still, I think it's a useful question uh, to ask. Uh, and perhaps also ask the, the standard questions of challenges they've had to face in the past, personally, and both um, in the company. And then maybe also go on to say, as a, as a courtesy from yourself in this kind of reverse situation, that you'll be there to offer them as much support and um, learning facility in their onboarding, even though they're going to be your manager until they're kind of up to speed. So, so let them know that they can come to you to ask questions that you might be able to give them and that you'll be completely open and, and honest with them in the, in the expectation that that kind of direct honesty will be reciprocated. I like that. Earlier, earlier this week, um, the, the, I guess my boss's boss, you know, got us together and, and she said, you know, looking forward, no, I don't know exactly the timeline of when this person's uh, when this person's going to be this position will be backfilled. Um, she said, "So I can't promise certainty, but I can promise transparency." Uh, and she's she's always delivered on that, so I didn't I didn't doubt it either. But it was just a really nice soundbite. I made sure to like write it down as a quote because it needs to be on a needs to be on a mug or a something that I'm going to keep in mind um, moving forward. I, I liked it a lot. <clears throat> Thanks for that, Dina. Yeah, so a uh, couple thoughts. Um, first, uh, wanted to comment, uh, kind of build on what Russell said, because it's really important to get to know the management style as much as you can. And although, of course, people are going to, you know, want to present themselves in the best light, that's the point of an interview. You really do want to know things like, you know, how do you motivate people or what do you think are the things that, you know, motivate staff or how do you like, however you want to phrase it, but you know, you can leave it open-ended. Um, you can ask them, what's your management style? Um, you know, probably less detail in your question might be better. Um, and as well, um, picking up on something Rashad said, um, it's kind of like when you can ask them, how do you, when you get here, assuming you're hired and you come in, what, you know, what strategy do you think you might employ to understand the organization better? And what I'm driving at with this question is that I've seen it again and again. A lot of times, like I've seen people manage up or manage their peers and manage up and they're the nicest people ever. Like, and then I've seen them treat people below them like absolute dirt. And when I learned of this, and I was a person's peer who did this, and when I learned about this, like my impression of him instantly took a nosedive because I don't like that. I think that's crap. The people, sure. you know, some of the lowest tier people, quote unquote, they're the ones doing all the work. And, you know, another thing is you can learn a lot from those folks. So rather than, you know, strictly hobnobbing with their peers or people senior to them, I would like personally to see them want to talk to, you know, in depth, everyone is going to report to them as well as others across the organization. That's how you really learn. And as well, like, yes, I think 100% you can help that person 
you know, get on board and understand how things actually work once they get there. Um, and I would offer that for sure. I would be a little cautious because until they get in there and they, you start to see how they operate, you don't necessarily know how they're going to use that information. And if I didn't have personal experience that was not quite so positive, I wouldn't throw that out there. But I'd say, you know, as trust builds, right? Trust tree, it's all about that. So as, <laughs> as the trust builds, you, you, you can continue to offer more and more and see how that goes. Cool. Thank you. Ben. So I definitely want you to ask them to invert their org chart from memory on the whiteboard and see how fast they can do it. That 100% has to happen. But aside from that, when you're in the interview with them, this is going to be the most seriously they take your questions. So if you ask them a question and they feel like they're just, you know, you feel like they're kind of disengaged, that tells you everything you need to know going forward about how much concern you're going to get. Because that's what you, I mean, really look at it that way. Like you are going to Great get point. the best possible side of them during the interview. And so look for nonverbal cues. If they're engaged with you, that's a good sign. Leaning in, open posture, not worried or concerned about you. Because a lot of times leaders come in and they're intimidated by existing staff. And that's one of the things that I have to coach new leaders or leaders making a transition about is don't worry about the people that are there. They're there to support you. You want them to be better than you. There's no wrong side to that. And you want to look for somebody that understands that piece. Like they're not looking to be the technical smartest person and lead because they're the smartest person in the room. You want somebody who can lead because they're actually a leader. And the other question that's always a good one is, have you ever come into a situation like this one? And don't explain it. Like literally leave it kind of open and watch where they go with it. Because somebody who's been around the block a few times is going to say, well, what do you mean this situation? And that'll be the immediate clarifying question. But somebody who's a little less experienced, that's probably who you're going to get at the management level or, or junior director level. They're going to start explaining to you what they think they're walking into. And that will give you the greatest sense of their capabilities in how well have they to this point assessed what they're picking up. And that's really the better the leader, the closer they're going to be to the reality of what's going on, because it's usually not too hard to figure out what's going on. So those are all kind of the things that I would ask and the things I would look for, but more than anything else, you know, when they start, give them two weeks you know, definitely say your hi, say, hey, what's good? You know, I'm here to help. You obviously know where I am, but for two weeks, just leave them alone for the most part. They're going to come see you just plenty, but they're overwhelmed. And if you give them more information about the situation, oh my God, you may even like, and they don't have a point of reference to figure out who's giving them the straight and who's giving them the corporate line. So they don't know if you are setting them up or if you are helping them out. They, they have no idea. And depending upon the type of corporate culture they came from, the, you may have someone who is looking out for, you know, stabs in the back from the people below them or so give them some space. And that's really the best thing I can say for those first two weeks. Give them some space. 
be available. You know, just keep saying, I'm here if you need me. Let me know what I can do to help. And if they look at you like, I need help and I don't know what I can ask you for, that's when you start talking about what it is that you can do and, and maybe some things that you might be able to help them through. That is all really good. I like it a lot. Thank you. Um, Russell, you want to say what you added in the comments here? I haven't had a chance to read over it yet. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I typed it in because I'd already had a go speaking, but um, I basically said that an additional salient point would be following the experiences we've all gone through uh, with the pandemic um, impacts of the last couple of years. You know, say, uh, to them, assuming everything's great again and there's another extreme worldwide event such as that, what non standard methods would you look to employ to um, promote? positivity and resilience within the team you're responsible for managing, you know, outside of everything else, just what, what would you go the extra mile for to make sure your team um, was, was doing well under extreme circumstances? That's great. Yeah. Got like three interviews worth of like good questions and stuff here now. <laughs> cool. Um, Joe, just, uh, do you want to, Nice one, Ben. Uh, um, you know, it's interesting. I, 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 every week I do a, a kickoff call with my, with my team, um, kind of lay out the priorities for the week. And, and there's always, you know, kind of a, you know, the last slide is always here. Here's, here's a big idea to think about. Um, you know, and this week what I talked about was just um, Stephen Covey's, uh, you know, circle of influence versus circle of control, if you've seen that before. So it's like, um, or circle of concern, I should say, versus circle of influence. So circle of concern is like all the things that you're concerned about, like, um, you know, am I, you know, am I good looking? Um, you know, am I going to get nuked tomorrow? Um, you know, uh, is my model working in production? Um, you know, and, and all these things. And then circle of influence is basically like, okay, so out of all these things, like what can I really control, right? Um, and so I, I told the team, look, I mean, a, a healthy way of approaching the week is like, you got to focus on what you can control or, you know, you're going to get, you're going to eat in live, especially with the news is, is, is these days. I mean, it's enough to bring like the most stoic sane person to their knees. Like we're not in a healthy state right now in the world. So, you know, that's, you know, there's, there's only so much I can do as an employer and as a boss to tell people, you know, have a positive attitude, but anything that can instill in them is look, I mean, how you approach each day and how you bring yourself, you know, to just to life these days is, um, what you need to really focus on. I can't do that for you. So. What? What, is, what, is, what, you know, what, what management techniques are good in a global nuclear conflict? I have no idea, man. We're, <laughs> we haven't been here for several decades, so. Cool. Thank you very much. Anybody else have any uh, questions they want to ask? My uh, notebook just fell on the floor, so I'm going to take a moment to grab that. <laughs> Standing desk didn't have quite enough space for it, I guess. Ben, how's your most recent trip? New mug? It was crazy. Uh, so I've been to Saudi Arabia four times in the last two months. It's twenty five hours. Favorite time. time. Yeah. Oh, my favorite time. Uh, maybe this last time. <laughs> Uh, every time we go, I, at the end of the week, I'll, I'll tease my CEO and say, did you learn anything? And it's a, it's a stupid question. Cause it's like, of course you did. 
but yeah, the I, I feel like every trip I do when I go there, I age a year. So it's good. All right. Really fun yeah. visiting there. Sounds great. Yeah, it's it's a neat place. That it's totally different. Like I I've actually been very inspired by them. I so so Joe, I think one of the I think being in the U.S., we we're very U.S. centric and we're pro democracy. And I think what you realize in Saudi Arabia is they can actually do things we can't. So when it comes to innovation or routing resources, they can actually move much quicker than we can. Mm-hmm. And and we're seeing that. So we a couple of weeks ago they had their lead conference, first conference they had a hundred thousand attendees. Like so, you know, normally you have to build up a conference over time. They had a hundred thousand attendees and. And they had celebrities walking around, like people, like who's who in AI, people you've seen on Joe Rogan's podcast are like walking around the conference. And so it's, it's crazy what they can do when they want to do it. Uh, I, I heard you guys were talking about the Ukrainian conflict, which I think is top of mind for everyone right now. Just what does it mean? Yeah. Yeah. And how to be a manager during the Ukrainian conflict, I guess, <laughs> where it was going, uh-huh. I guess. Or just being a manager during, I guess, crazy times in general. <clears throat> well, I mean, we've done that already. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> managing yeah, we have... I mean, that was like a crash course and a bunch of stuff like remote work for some people. And obviously, you know, people going crazy from working at home for, for a couple of years now. So I mean, managing stuff on a good day when you don't have a pandemic and like looming nuclear thermonuclear warfare and stuff. So it's like... I don't know. It's a, it's a tough job. Everyone says it's easy. I ask people, why don't you go try it out for a couple hours? Let me know what you think about that. So. Wait. Speaking, speaking. Oh, go ahead, Ben. Well, I was just going to say real quick. It, it reminds me. I think people that know me on this call know I'm a huge storytelling nerd. And a big part of that is knowing your audience. And so knowing Putin and his priorities, when you really know his priorities, it makes a lot more sense. It's hard to say something like this makes sense, but it, you know, he's been warning people for so long about Ukraine not joining NATO and not joining the EU because he sees it as a threat to him. And and I guess in the US, I'm not justifying anything that that he's doing, of course, because I think it's insane and I think it's terrible. And we have a lot of people over there that we care deeply about that are being harmed by it. But it's, it's interesting when you really understand your audience and, and Joe, you've got a lot more experience with China and understanding them and their mindset. And I think, I think unfortunately in the world today, a lot of times we don't understand the other side, but uh, not, not, and, I, and by saying that, I'm not saying I justify anything that Putin's doing because I think it is out of control, but I think if we'd understood him better, maybe we would have, I, I don't know, maybe that's a controversial thing to say. Would we not be here fighting if we had understood what his triggers were? So, yeah, I, sorry, I was just going to say from what I've read and seen, um, I think it's taken a lot of people by surprise. It really seems by many accounts to be a strategic misstep. Let's just say it that way. Like that's an understatement. Um, An armed conflict is like has many damaging repercussions, not just now, but for years to come. And here's a question, and it kind of brings it back to data science. Um, Over the last several years, I 
one of my interests is cybersecurity, actually. And I can't entirely explain why other than it's my risk management side and kind of thinking and see, you know, trying to see around corners for potential um, risks to an organization, to a society, et cetera. And um, many of you may be aware or have read the book Sandworm by Andy Greenberg, who is a writer for Wired. It's an amazing book in its own right. I mean, it's just, it's written really well. It's fascinating. And it's all about the elite um, uh, team of hackers and so on in the Russian uh, security apparatus. And, you know, Putin is a longtime security guy. He, he knows all the ins and outs of information warfare. He was the head of the KGB back in the day in the Soviet days. Some of us remember those days. Um, and the, the information warfare machinery they put in is extremely sophisticated and effective. And if you read Sandworm or if you know much about um, their efforts, I mean, they shut down, I think, a lot of Ukraine's grid back in 2014 and uh, shut down the Internet in, I can't remember which country now, but um, Latvia or Estonia, one of those former Eastern Bloc kind of countries. Um, so the fact that they're doing a physical invasion now seems kind of um, bizarre, and it seems to have taken a lot of security analysts by surprise. It's true, it's no secret that Putin wants to reconstitute, if not the Soviet Union, then the Russian empire to its former glory. But I think people didn't think that it was going to um, go this route, especially given all the sophisticated tools they have at their disposal, relatively cheap cyber warfare tools that they could utilize. It's like, you kind of go, okay, I don't get this. This doesn't make much sense. It's tended to unify Europe. It's strengthened uh, European allies and resolve and, you know, Western allies. It's probably strengthened NATO. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. And there was one article that was actually posted uh, by someone to Mikiko's feed on LinkedIn. And I thought it was really good. It talked about Putin's state of mind and how it seems he's grown more isolated during the pandemic and seems to have gone into more of a, I don't know what the word is, but more of a fantasy land or a, you know, historical revisionist attitude towards uh, Russia and their destiny. And Russell, Russell has his hand raised. So um, maybe we can come back to the kind of data science and cyber security, information warfare, misinformation and all the rest in a bit. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, and, and, and I guess what I wanted to say kind of ties together what you were saying there, Gina, and what Ben was saying before, um, that, you know, the, the storytelling and the um, the understanding of another's perspective, uh, I think it's not just that, you know, the rest of the world hasn't really been on the same page as Russia and, and Putin, etc. I, I think it's that they haven't wanted to be. And that kind of comes back to, you know, the cognitive biases like confirmation bias, anchoring bias, all those types of things. Uh, it, it suits the agenda to not consider another's perspective. And I think that's very much how uh, a lot of the, the Western politics and the, and the Western um, powerhouses, you know, superpowers and other first world countries, uh, uh, Europe and the Americas, et cetera, have been for it. 
And then from the other side of the fence, I think there's equally that, you know, the same cognitive biases coming from internally in Russia. You know, they have their own agenda for, for what they want to do as a country. And let's say this is the, uh, the political regime there rather than the country as a whole. Um, that's very uh, exclusionary and isolating. So, you know, uh, co uh, confirmation bias is, is just present everywhere in modern life, really. Um, very few situations more extremely uh, than this, uh, with very few situations with more extreme um, circumstances uh, or consequences, should I say, as this. Uh, and uh, there was one last thing that I want to say, which was, was not quite so related to, to this current conflict, but um, slightly associated. And it was, uh, I, I responded to someone else's content on LinkedIn recently talking about the great resignation and how people's mindset and general um, mental well-being was and what perhaps was leading to the great resignation and this dissonance that, you know, globally most people have been feeling as a result of the pandemic. And there was one line in there that really resonated with me, and it was that everybody has been accumulating disappointment. So, you know, from the start of the of the, the pandemic impact, all of these additional disappointments and negative uh, situations have been accumulating on top of those that were there before. And I think that is um, very likely what has led to a greater frequency of resignations, or at the very least, employee dissatisfaction even if it hasn't left to a resignation yet. So um, mental well-being and positivity in the professional workspace, I think in most places, is an all-time low currently because of worldwide events. And then that kind of brings us back to the Ukraine situation in recent weeks. This has just been an extra, you know, an extra hit for everybody that's, you know, that, that likes to look at the world positively. This is the opposite of a positive event, you know. So much, only so much piles up on your shelf before you're willing to take action. <clears throat> I just want to jump in quickly with the, you know, talking about Putin, he needs an enemy. And that's really what, when you look at this move, it's because he's realized that if Russia does not have strong enemies, if they don't actually have enemies, it's very difficult to unify without that sense of, this is who we are. This is who they are. And if you've had someone who's led through periods where Russia had strong, concentrated enemies, obvious enemies, then you begin to understand that Putin needs enemies. And that's what makes this just kind of terrifying in some ways, is that Putin's calculus right now is that no matter who emerges as my enemy, as long as I can get the people in Russia to believe that that is an enemy and that it is a strong enemy and that is a threat and that we must come together as a nation, then I can reestablish my base of power and continue to govern. And, and I think that's the, that's the real horrific part of this is he isn't doing it for any other reason than to create enemies so that he can continue to maintain a grip on power. And it's just, it's really hard to imagine that it's something that, that petty, and that's silly, because that's where, you know, the rest of the world has a hard time understanding that piece of it, that we're trying to create, you know, we're trying to do like 3D chess. And when it comes to even the smartest of leaders, it's typically a simpler explanation 
behind what it is that they're doing. And if you look at the past and what's worked for them in the past, you can typically find the motivation. That's a really good point. Go ahead, that's really that's really interesting because I I like to think a lot about human intelligence and why we're so smart, and a big part of it is the size of societies that we can build, and you can get rulers and dictators that are are good. You can get democracies, and then you can get some like Putin where they can cause a lot of harm. And so it is kind of the the good and bad of humanity. But we wouldn't be as smart as we were today if we weren't able to get past the the small isolated tribes that we have. That's an interesting perspective. I am, yeah, that that's useful to hear. I think um, I was going to say I think global affairs defies otherwise positive interpretations that we like to apply to the rest of human endeavors, like I don't know, wealth increasing, employment, uh, technology, like a lot of these things in the West. Anyway, we have this sort of very linear view of how these things work. Uh, like it's, everything is just getting better. And so when you look at something like politics and you're like, oh, we're going backwards, what the hell? Um, that, it defies it. And I think the main reason is because uh, no one entity can control the global political like situation. It's sort of, you, you basically, at the highest level, it's basically s- several entities that compete with one another. And so um, therefore you get, you know, it's it's got like a game theory thing. Like uh, if one person, if one entity wants to fight, then it kind of forces everyone else to fight, or else they're going to get wiped out. You know, so then everyone fights, and it's sort of an escalating spiral. Um, whereas in something like I don't know, like a, a free market, you know, uh, in the West, you can sort of set conditions and create regulations, and for the most part, they're adhered to, and then you can sort of change the game, I guess, in a way that is difficult in in uh, global affairs. So then like uh, strategy in its original inception in warfare is where it becomes more relevant again. Like what scares, what or what's our goal? Like that sort of thing. Suddenly we're all playing risk again. <laughs> yeah, taking you back. I, I was thinking of, um, let's see, a book written by Amy Zagart called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. I've been listening to the audiobook version and I'm about halfway through. And she talks in some depth, she's a political science professor at Stanford, and she um, talks in some depth about um, uh, cognitive biases. So she really maps out a lot of them and how they've contributed to some military uh, failures, uh, intelligence failures in the past. And one is called mirroring bias. So we look at others and assume they basically have the same motives and belief systems that we have. And that, that can be a really, really, uh, dangerous one to fall into when it comes to security and military. And she cites examples of, of those failures. So I just wanted to toss that in. Cool. Thanks for sharing the resource. Dropped it in the chat. Uh, hopefully it'll find its way, I guess, into the LinkedIn chat. What's up, Ben? I had a, a more optimistic uh, topic uh, when we're ready to shift gears. It's about innovation and the future. I know, I, I think I've brought this up a few times, but I'm actually kicking off something in a few weeks uh, to help uh, spearhead innovation or be more involved with innovation at Data Robot. But one of the one of the things we're doing is we're opening up the idea funnel. So we want anyone in the company who has an idea to be able to contribute that idea and then have a rubric or approval process. So I guess the the question I have for the team is, 
uh, there's obviously so many books on this topic, right? Like Amazon, like everyone has books on innovation because I feel like it's something that is incredibly hard to do and most people fail at it. And then you have um, loon shots, you have these different things. So the, the thought right now is to have a rubric with a steering committee and the rubric protects us from all of the ideas. Cause you, you know, if you open the pipeline, Hey, you got a, a thousand people to give you ideas. Some of the ideas coming in might not be ideas that you would invest in. They could also be really good ideas for other companies. And so right now we have a rubric where it's going to be scored on product alignment, strategy alignment, uh, patentability. Uh, we did have some feedback on flagging innovation for incremental breakthrough or moonshot, which I liked because then you kind of have buckets for, and then the, the big one that I care a lot about is attribution. So what is your anticipated value that will come from this idea? Um, and so I guess to share that with the group, uh, I'd love to just hear people's reactions and thoughts on how do they think about innovation? Can innovation be scored with a rubric? Uh, if you do have an onslaught of ideas coming your way, cause it's all about resources and prioritization. We, we don't have infinite resources and we don't have infinite time and people, but we can execute on impossible things if we decide to do that. I guess one thought, as you said, you know, can innovation be scored? So I'm on a, just like a, a smaller scale, but process improvement committee for one of the verticals I support. <clears throat> so every couple of weeks we get together and we have a scoring rubric as well, based on like the value, the confidence, the uh, amount of effort. And so the thought of like, can we score innovation? I just flip it. I was just thinking about flipping it around the other way. Like, well, if we don't score innovation, then like it's, it's just going to kind of float out there. And I think that makes it much less likely for us to even just decide that we want to like take a stab at one of the top 10, because, you know, I, I, I think that it just helps us separate out, even if it's like, Oh, these are our top five kind of favorite ideas. And there's pretty good chance that one of them is going to be awesome. I, one thing I really like what you said is, is there a, is there a moonshot, a moonshot versus an incremental value score? Because not everybody's going to have a, a moonshot idea. And when you do, it's, it's, it's rare. And so I, I really think that it's nice to be able to capture and, and, and attribute value to, to both of them. It's important for a culture of continuous improvement. Curious what your thoughts are, Vin. I was just going to jump in and say the, if you look at the, um, U.S. Army, DARPA, Department of Defense, they're all grappling with that too, where everyone in the world wants to innovate for them, but you know, it's, <laughs> they're looking at a fire hose and trying to figure out, okay, what in this fire hose makes any sense? And so they frequently publish, you know, here's what we're looking for. And that's one of the things that I think has been successful. I've seen it picked up by different businesses too. I know Capital One's done it, I know Walmart's done it, where they publish, you know, here's four things. And you can do this internally, you don't have to publish publicly but they'll say, here are the four core lines of innovation. And here are our strategies, our main kind of sub points under what exactly it is that we are looking for in an innovation. What does innovation look like? What are, and they are coming out with not so much, this is what we need, you know, in specifying that, but they're getting very specific with, this is what it would look like. You know, and this, so it's not an idea of the, direction that it'll go except for those high level goals but it's very much focused on you bringing us an in innovation this is what it would look like if you brought us an in innovation because here are the innovations that have worked for us in the past 
and they're really creating documentation and defining a framework, not around a rubric for measurement, but really just explaining the framework of it. And they've got one that they just released for, you know, what an AI an autonomous system in the battlefield would look like. And it takes it from prototype all the way through to, this is what it would look like when we were ready to deploy it. And it's got, you know, it's a drill down of, you know, here's how we measure autonomy. Here's how we measure deep learning. Here's how we, def- I mean, it's just, and it's so granular, but at the same time, it's, it's widely applicable to anything somebody would bring to them, but it really helps them to funnel people who can go from here's an idea to here's the application of it or the execution. And for them, it's really worked out well to, to funnel it without killing off ideas. A little piece I'll add on to there. Then I want to hear what Russell had to say was I used to work for an SBIR, STTR. Well, that was like the focus um, agency. And so we, we did things for uh, mostly biology, you know, and health, health related products, but also things for the department of defense, all sorts of stuff. And like Vin was saying, if you knew what the program managers priorities were, that made your phone calls with them a whole lot easier. And there were companies who were like, yeah, we work with such and such a medical device. And they're like, well, we need a medical device that has this computer vision component to it. And they're like, our medical device will have that computer vision component to it. Here we go. And they would pivot to make that happen. Um, and so I think, I definitely like the idea of having some guidance as to maybe where you, uh, at a very high level, you have some visibility as to where you think innovation could go. And of course, you want to welcome it from others, but some people like me don't have your high level of vision. And so if you say, we're looking at this computer vision thing, then that at least gives me an idea of where to, where to point, where to think, where to research, where to spin my wheels and try and come up with something. But- Russell, what, what were you going to say? I see Ben's hands up also. Do you want to go first, oh. Ben? Oh, no, I, I left it up. I'm lowering my okay. hand for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, yeah, so I, I was looking this more of a, a philosophical or um, practical perspective to say, you know, okay, so can we score innovation firstly? If we, if we could, perhaps it would be better to categorize it into um, specific criteria. So one, maybe deviation points um, from orthodoxy or expected evolution. So as you were saying, Ben, you know, a, a moonshot kind of wacky idea would score right up towards 100% end of the scale and something that was fairly um, standard fare, although outside of the, the spectrum of what had been built already, but wasn't kind of breaking boundaries, would be towards the lower end of the spectrum. So that, that could be one criteria. Then the predicted success uh, plus the actual measured success if it goes to um, production. And those three factors together uh, could give some kind of a, a good aggregate scoring on the effectiveness of the innovations. And ultimately, um, perhaps also added to uh, a predictive ML model to, uh, to, to spit out some kind of uh, uh, a return if you put in inputs of um, prospective future innovations um, by passing those against the, the model of everything that's gone previously. What do you think? I think having, once you have inventions previously or examples like you and Vin mentioned, I think that's helpful because otherwise it just feels like a white sheet of paper and people panic. They feel, but once you have examples and you're just, I, I actually, I, I was laughing Vin because for this meeting in a few weeks, I actually want bad examples. 
I want bad examples of innovation to show people that this idea, we quickly killed it. And this idea, we quickly championed. And I think one of the things you hit on, Russell, is the anticipated success. That's actually something that um, it really the decision is, are you going to invest in attempting the innovation? We actually just assume it will be successful, which obviously is not true. Like it will fail, especially in a moonshot. Moonshots are likely to fail. Um, and one of the things I'm a fan of is um, maybe this is me going through the meat grinder of startup, but I feel like if someone does an innovation or if they do a feature, if that feature fails, if it's coming from opinion, it should be the worst day of their life. But if it's coming from a process, you can now critique the process. If it's coming from, does that make sense? Like if I, if I, if I champion to all of you guys that we need to go invest a lot of money in this idea, if it doesn't work, if it's just my opinion, then that is, that's a really crappy place to be for all of you. Cause you trusted me, but if they're, but if it fails and we come back to process and say, well, how could we have failed sooner? Like rather than doing the work, could you have gone and done some sales validation or user validation or like you? Um, but I, all of this is just, I, I think it's about process evolution, um, but it's, it's kind of a fun idea. Can you, can you prioritize ideas? And, and with moonshots, that's a little harder because they're high risk. And a lot of times they're not justified by, short-term value. Um, oh, an example of bad innovation. Um, oh, so many examples of bad innovation. Um, I think sometimes with technophiles, they, and, and I'm sure many of you guys relate to this. You are, you love the space, you love the vertical that you're in. And if you're not careful, you could spin away on some PhD level spectrogram improvement compared to the baseline, something you could find on the open source community and your peers would be blown away but the business is not. And so that'd be an example of a very bad innovation because before you do the work, I want you to tell me how this will make money. And the three options are uh, sales validation, user validation, or marketing or attention validation. So you will actually fail on sales validation because by sales validation, it needs to show up as a top three close reason in Salesforce. Because I think one of the issues is people try to throw things in baskets to get credit, partial credit, um, so your spectrogram, your genius spectrogram breakthrough that gives a 5% lift, the salesperson can't sell it. It's not going to close the deal. Um, a user might use it. That could be some justifications and I might be able to get a webinar out of it. But compared to, um, th there's so many other innovations that are quite silly to not do because we already have revenue, like pre-revenue commits, right? Coming in. Um, and ideally do innovations that hit all three. Innovations that users like, innovations that sales loves to sell to an executive buyer, and then innovations that we're thrilled to throw, throw a webinar around or marketing because it's that, that's kind of the dream scenario. I, I do have an innovation coming up that will only succeed on the attention front. It actually fails on sales and fails on the user, but I can justify it from a marketing perspective. So that would be like um, Google's, um, some of their stunts they've done with um, the video games. Uh, depending on the numbers, I think you can actually justify that entire project based on the intention. Some people might disagree. I know, I know that's been in the news, the $400 million spent on DeepMind and, and maybe they can't justify the new business from that attention. Um, or I, I saw they applied that technologies to optimize some power grid. Um, so maybe that's a bad example. Maybe they have not been able to justify their spend, but the hope would be if you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars that you can justify it. Um, 
So Ben, what do you think about, I just thought of something while you were talking about this concept cars. I think we've all seen, you know, pictures of concept cars at auto shows. They look amazing. And truth is they never actually go anywhere a lot of the time. Um, and yet they may have put a lot of money into that. Now as a fraction of total investment or whatever, it may not be that much, but it captures imaginations. And I wonder if that's part of what you were driving at, so oh. to speak. Well, no pun so, intended. So Gina, something that's helpful for AI professionals to keep them engaged is they like to see cool stuff. And so building, investing money to build a concept car analogy in AI, even if it doesn't directly impact the product, I think in some cases it can be justified, um, which, which is a great point. I, I think AI professionals are some of the most high maintenance people on the planet, just because you're so, you're so sought after. Um, so that, that makes it difficult to retain you. There's this concept of like talent gravity. So if we're all working together, that's great. We'll keep working together. But if some of you start leaving now, I have a problem, but if you have a talent gravity, then that it's a good way to keep people. But what you mentioned, Gina, sometimes they need to see the concept cars because that's, that's what they really wanted to see in the first place, but they, you have to justify a business. And so you can't just keep building concept cars for fun. Maybe someday, someday we will just build concept cars for fun in AI. But um, I'm going to read through these comments because I think there's a lot of good stuff here on the side from you guys. And I appreciate it. This, this innovation stuff is tricky. It's much easier to get it wrong than to get it right. There's a, an aspect of this I'm almost slightly afraid to bring up. But um, there's the emotional relevance and resonance of innovative ideas um, because it's not immediately obvious why we should do anything or why we should be innovative in the first place. Like we here are taking it as a given that we should, but there is a lot of the world that does not. And so I think part of the criteria, it can't just be like marginal improvement in some measurable quantity. There, there's also like, you know, the talent that you have and maybe the talent you want to attract and is the innovative idea you have exciting enough to make people want to commit their blood, sweat and tears to it. Um, I think that can be, that is an aspect of picking innovative things to do along with the more, I suppose, measurable, rational things. You remind me of a point um, where sometimes the most boring things make you the most money, but they don't excite your talent. And so that that's kind of a good reminder that you need, you need to balance. Yeah. You need an outlet at least <laughs> depending on the business. Yeah, you guys want to come work for my Bayesian startup? We just have Bayesian models applied to insurance, and you're like, nah, I'm good. I'll do it. <laughs> I, I promise worked. we'll do fun things. We'll do fun things on the side, but if that was all you did, <laughs> I, it might for, not be. Uh, I worked for an EHS company, Environment Health and Safety, uh, which was uh, the umbrella company was an insurer. So, you know, again, risk management. Uh, there's, there can be some cool stuff there. Let's see, you know, it's true. You guys say that Elon Musk is a good example of picking innovative ideas that are not only uh, have a big impact or potential impact, but are exciting enough to get a lot of people into it. it. It reminds me of smart people like to work on impossible problems with other smart people. And so Elon is definitely feeding a bunch of engineers impossible problems. Um, and I think for some people that that's really what is the most exciting thing. You, you want to work on the biggest impossible problems with people that believe in that vision. Um, 
yeah, I, I, we did a proof of value with SpaceX at my previous company. So I was on site at Hawthorne six times. And the thing that blew me about, blew me away about SpaceX and their culture is everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid and it doesn't matter if you're turning a wrench, Elon's legacy is yours. So it's almost a cult following. So when you think of like vision and culture, I've never seen a company like SpaceX, like ever the, the way they think about their vision, uh, which is very inspiring. I, I don't think every company can pull that off because not every company is going to Mars or telling people they are. Cool. Great discussion on innovation. Anybody else want to add anything? I think with Elon, he's great at like the moonshot is really where I'm going. And then he pulls it back and makes it applicable. Like he, feel, he, he takes the part of the moonshot that works and he makes a product out of it. And I think that's his genius is he advertises, we're going to Mars, we're going to Mars. And then he puts Starlink satellites up. You know, he launches a car into space and then he actually does like returnable rockets that can take satellites up and does like he does the really interesting PR, but then monetizes the really boring stuff that he gets the engineers to do because they're doing, we're going to Mars. But what I need you to do is build me some Starlink satellites because we got to get paid. And he started doing this with Tesla. Like he, you know, he was the electric cars batteries, all this stuff. And then he like pulled everybody together and said, look, we're going to go out of business here in about six months. If we don't start delivering cars, I need you guys to do the impossible. And, and like, he took all these people that were doing moonshots and all of a sudden they were doing like applied practical. We got to get this out the door. We've got to improve our ability to ship. And he's incredible at that. He really is because he gets people motivated by the big stuff. And then using that, he gets them to like productize. It's, it's, it's awesome. I, I like that perspective because it's like you give them the carrot so they'll wade through the mud. You just have to make sure the carrot is interesting enough. Cool. Let's do that one. That's actually, yeah, Ben, I've, I've never heard that before. I really like that. I, oh, I'm not big, ben, anything else? I, I was going to say, I'm a big fan of ideas growing legs. Like I'm, I always think you should have three or five, three or five ideas, crazy ideas in your head. And they just kind of sit there and fester. And then eventually one of them grows long legs and crawls out of your mind. And so that's, I, I do like finding things like once a year where legs are growing and this idea is going to happen. And if I don't have resources internally, then I get resources through partners. Um, ideas growing legs is a, it's just something I like. Maybe it's a creepy thing to think about, like some spider-esque thing crawling out of your mind. But for me, that makes a lot of sense. Sweet. All right. Any other thoughts? I had a question, but I'm just going to save it for next week since we had plenty to talk about. Who knows if we're going to have questions next week. <clears throat> cool. Well, nobody has anything else, and I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up and pretty much jump into the weekend here soon. I don't really know um, what I'm supposed to do to end it other than hit the stop button here. So I'll say, Harper would say, you've got one life on this planet. Why not do something big? Cheers, y'all. That's probably what he would say. See ya. Yeah, thanks everyone.